Good morning and welcome again. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. It, is, it has taken 800 years for the rule of law to get to the, to the point where it's at in the Western uh, world. In more recent times, the rule of law has spread to other parts of the world, but the spread has faced many obstacles and has certainly been uneven. We are holding this event by happenstance on June 4th, the infamous, infamous anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, which occurred only 26 years ago, a reminder that so much of humanity still lives under the rule of tyranny rather than law that puts limitations on power. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the biggest challenge to development and to, the, and to liberty uh, is precisely in the establishment of the rule of law in a diverse set of countries around the world with a, a diversity of uh, histories and cultural traditions. And there has indeed been a proliferation of programs to promote the rule of law in places like the World Bank. But I think most such programs uh, have not been terribly successful. And I think that I've never actually met any expert who knows how to export or to directly promote uh, the rule of law, as opposed to promote judicial reforms or reorganizations which may uh, be worthwhile in and of themselves. It is probable that, like the vastly less complex uh, economic reforms uh, promoted by multilateral government agencies, the rule of law is not susceptible to being exported, at least not in a constructivist top-down uh, manner. This is not necessarily bad news. There has, after all, been progress in regions and countries and regions in uh, every region of the world in uh, strengthening the rule of law. In some cases, some quite significant progress. And this is a welcome development uh, because it means that the spread of liberty under the law, while it has many influences, has local roots and thus a certain amount of legitimacy. It means also that there is no simple way to um, bring power under the law and that the approaches to doing so will vary uh, quite a bit depending on particular local circumstances and conditions. We can only make some generalizations about the promotion of the rule of law and we must uh, look at the particular cases. This panel will look at the status of the rule of law around the world, beginning precisely with two case studies. So let us begin uh, with our first speaker, who I am honored and delighted to be able to introduce, Professor Richard Pipes, who is a professor emeritus at Harvard University, where he has been a historian of Russia and of uh, communism. He is the author of numerous seminal books on the history of Russia, and especially on intellectual uh, thought. His focus has, has been on the intellectual roots of the Russian tradition. And according to him, his greatest scholarly achievement is in analyzing the Russian political tradition and demonstrating the continuity between Tsarist Russia, communist Russia, and Russia since 1991. He has been a lifelong uh, enemy of, of communism and advocate of the very concept of the rule of law and individual liberty. So we're very pleased to have him join us uh, today. Please welcome Professor Pipes.
Well, thank you for inviting me to speak on this subject. Uh, I've been studying Russian history uh, for some 70 years and still learn new things about it. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is that although Russians are Europeans by race, by religion, by language, uh, they have very little in common with European culture. Whether you speak of law, of politics, of personal relations, uh, I constantly learn new things about Russians that astonish me and make me feel that even though the Russians are, by these various standards which I mentioned, Europeans, they have very, very little in common with Europe. And one of them, of course, is the subject of law. Uh, law plays a very minor role in Russian history uh, compared to European culture. And for this, there are at least two reasons. One is the very late development of private property. Um, property plays an enormous role in the development of law. In Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, which were issued in the late uh, 18th century, there are four volumes. And the second volume, which deals with property, is the thickest. Uh, if you had something like that for Russia, the law dealing with property would be this, the thinnest. Uh, because it developed very late and very uh, poorly. Uh, traditionally in Russia, uh, all the uh, property, and particularly land, which was the main source of income, belonged to the Tsar. Russia was what Max Weber called a patrimonial state, in that the ruler not only ruled, but also owned the country. Uh, there was no private property in land in Russia until 1785, very, very late. Uh, until then, all the land belonged to the Tsar. He handed it out to his nobility to be able to serve, primarily in the military. Uh, but if they uh, stopped serving, or if they served badly, the land was taken away from them. And only in 1785, under the rule of Catherine II, who was uh, a German, uh, the, the, the land which they uh, which was theirs, became theirs in, not only in fact, but also in, in, in law. Um, it was, Russia was a patrimonial state, and it meant that uh, property was not really a subject to, of law until very, very late. Uh, the second factor, which uh, played a vast role in Russia, was uh, the Russian need for security. If you look at Russian public opinion polls, which are very frequent today, you find that uh, to them freedom means very little, property means very little. Uh, the thing that matters is, uh, is security. They fear above all, uh, for, for histor good historical reasons, uh, anarchy. They feel if the state is weak, 
the country falls apart and uh, anarchy rules, and anarchy is detestable. Uh, Russians do not really feel themselves to be subjects and citizens of the Russian state. Uh, they have very, very weak connections with the Russian society and Russian state. They're connected almost primarily with the locality in which they live. If you ask a Russian, uh, who are you? He will say, I'm a man of Vitebsk or of Tvers, the cities where they live, or, or of the families of which they're members, but not of the Russian state, which is very, uh, very strange to us from the West. Um, law in Russia is primarily used uh, for the purpose of maintaining order in the country, not justice, but uh, order. There's a very interesting incident in Russian history uh, under, in the reign of Nicholas I, who ruled in the second half of the uh, 19th century, when an editor of a, of a journal came to see uh, an official by the name of Benkendorf, high official, to complain that uh, his journal was illegally treated by the authorities. And Benkendorf uttered what to me are the uh, quintessential Russian views of the function of law. Benkendorf said to him, look, laws are written for subjects not for the authorities, not for the government. And that indeed has been the tradition in Russia since earliest times. Um, as I've said, the Russians want uh, security, and for them security means a strong state. The this, this state should not be therefore to be strong uh, uh, in any way uh, controlled by law but be able to make law and do whatever it was outside the law as it exists. And so the law plays a very small role in uh, Russian history. Um, one of the Russian uh, experts uh, on the history of Russian institutions, uh, Korkunov, uh, said that uh, law in Russia uh, performs the function of maintaining order and not enforcing justice. And then I think most Russians will agree that is a, is, is a, is a sound uh, policy. Uh, the notion that the government should be controlled by law or limited by law is absolutely uh, not uh, acceptable by the majority of Russians. We now have many polls conducted in Russia, endless polls conducted, whole books coming out on the subject, and you get that notion all the time. The, the government can do what it wants to maintain uh, security for us. Uh, they, feel they feel very insecure. They feel that if, the, if government is weak, the result is anarchy, and anarchy threatens them. Um, so um, they are not really integrated in a social order which preserves them, and they feel that they are always at risk if society weakens. Uh, hence, law in everyday life plays a very small role in Russia. There's a recent book by a man called Gregory Pfeiffer uh, about Russia. Uh, 
and he and I quote him, he wrote as follows Russians view contracts not as binding agreements, but simply as guidelines about how they might act in the future. Maybe they will comply, maybe they will, they will not. Uh, this is very difficult for us to understand, and uh, it is a tragedy of Russia, I think, but nothing you can do about that because their insecurity is enormous. Uh, it, it often occurred to me uh, that if um, the police came and confiscated the house of my neighbor and evicted the neighbor, uh, I would be outraged because I feel that the same thing can happen to me next day. A Russian would be relieved. He would say, well, if they did it to him, they won't do it to me. Uh, and that is how it is, and very difficult for us to understand. I, I don't think that the situation in Russia in this respect will change very soon. Uh, Russians want strong authority to prevent a social breakdown, which they fear far more than the lack of a social order. And this is how it is, and this is what makes Russia so different from the rest of the West. Thank you. Thanks very much. We will now hear uh, from my colleague Swami Iyer, who will discuss who will discuss India. India is an interesting case study because it's uh, certainly a developing country with the English uh, colonial legacy and the uh, successful or at least long-standing uh, democracy. Swami Iyer is a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He writes the Sunday column for the Times of India, which is the the biggest English language uh, newspaper in the world. He has been the editor of the two leading financial dailies in, in India. He has been a correspondent for The Economist. He has uh, written numerous studies for the Cato Institute on various aspects of, of policy reform in, in India and is currently working on a book which is a collection of studies on India and Indian reform. Please help me welcome Swami Iyer. Okay, uh, let me start with the historical perspective of India. Historically, India was not a nation. It was a subcontinent with more than 1,000 constantly warring kingdoms. Uh, no settled idea of who really was the ruler. Uh, a dynasty of 30 years was considered a pretty long time, uh, you know, stability for 30 years. So it's a place of dozens of languages, many religions. In theory, rulers had absolute power over their subjects. Still, the fact is that technology and distance being what it was, uh, a king couldn't really exercise direct control over everybody. So feudal systems developed of various kinds in different regions of India, giving powers to different feudal layers. So there was the emperor on top, then there would be kings, then there would be local chieftains. And for the vast majority of people, for 90% of the people, it was the village council which was the key factor because that was the immediate locality which took the local decisions. Uh, the panchayats or village councils, it meant you know five village elders. 
They typically belonged to the dominant caste or the religion, and they ruled on issues like crime, disputes, property, and so on. There was no question of equality before the law. I mean, the nobles were, in effect, above the law. As they said, we now have the idea that the rich pay taxes. In the old days, the whole idea was that the poor pay taxes and the nobles collect them. The idea was exactly the opposite way around. Uh, the nobles and upper castes dominated decision-making and dominated evidence. I mean, the evidence of an upper caste man was worth 100 times more than that of uh, an untouchable who would be at the, bo- at the particular bottom. In fact, you had a problem that the Hindu religion had the idea of karma and rebirth. So the whole idea is that if you did dreadful things in your last life, in this life you would be reborn as a low caste person or as a poor person or even horror of horrors as a white man or an American. Uh, uh, And therefore, there was no question of saying there has to be sympathy for the poor or equality for the poor. No, 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 those guys are there because of all their sins. Why on earth should I be sitting around saving those sinners? So there's no question of equality before the law. Uh, Different religious groups maintained their own personal law. Uh, So I suppose Muslims could stone their adulterers. Uh, Hindus could burn a widow on the pyre of the husband. I mean, uh, to give two extreme and rather horrible examples of local traditional laws. Uh, rulers did not usually interfere in this, uh, except to a limited extent. Uh, when the Muslims, when Muslims overran most of India, they imposed attacks on non-Muslims. So this is one clear case of interfering. Uh, but I have to say that at the end of it all, economics won. Uh, every single Muslim ruler wanted revenue. If he converted everybody to Islam, he would lose all the revenue or the taxes he was putting on the Hindus. Uh, Therefore, in India, you had no conversion of the sword uh, and astonishingly little really attempt at any kind of forced conversion. India had nothing like the Magna Carta and there was no formal document to bind Indian rulers or emperors who, in theory, could do anything they liked. Although in practice, the feudal systems evolved and gave powers and rights to lower feudatories and the panchayats. Then along came the British Raj, the British Empire, different from any other empire before because it, could, it was an empire that ruled from afar and didn't rule by actually having to come in India and settle down and rule as a local power. The East India Comp- it was not, I mean, there was no such thing as conquest of India by the British Army. There was this East India Company, which was supposed to be a trading company, but every trader to protect his goods had to have guns. And if you had enough guns, suddenly you found that, you know, 50 disciplined English soldiers could defeat an Indian army of 10,000. Uh, and then the temptation became inescapable. Uh, and in stages, the East India Company conquered India in stages from 1757. Uh, at the end of it all, it was about 40% of India they covered. A very large number of Indian princely states continued uh, autonomously to, in theory, although uh, under, under white rule. Uh, the British brought with them the concept of the white man's burden, saying, oh my God, look at these dreadful barbarians out there. We have to civilize them. Uh, and to this extent, there were attempts to reform some of the worst evils or the various local religions. But you have to note that the main aim of the East India Company naturally was trading profit and the collection of taxes. 
the East India Company, in effect, forced the opium war on China in order to enable Indian opium <laughs> to be sold to China uh, in order to make a profit. So at the end of it all, the white man's burden included various burdens placed on the Chinese and on the Indians. After 100 years of British rule, in 1857, there was a very major mutiny by Indian troops against their British masters, which almost succeeded. And had it succeeded, there would have been absolutely mass slaughter uh, of all the whites there. One of the causes of that particular mutiny was that the Indian soldiers had been issued cartridges and those cartridges had a certain amount of grease which has to be removed like this before being put in the gun. And these were greased with, partly with pork fat, which was anathema to the Muslims, and partly with beef fat, which was anathema to the Hindus. So, I mean, the Indian soldiers began to see this as a deliberate attempt to denigrate their religion. And everybody knew that white man's burden really ultimately meant we are all supposed to convert to Christianity. Uh, and become that kind of guy. So, I mean, this was one of the reasons for the revolt. So, after the revolt was put down, the East India Company ceased to rule India. The British government came in formally. Uh, so, the rule of law became much more of an important thing. The British government declared no further interference in Indian personal laws. We don't want to spark another mutiny. But they did bring in Western concepts of equality before the law, of government officials being responsible for their actions. Now, while you brought in the rule of law to say exactly there was equality of the law would clearly be wrong. Because if an Englishman was accused of raping an Indian girl, uh, he could only be tried by a jury composed exclusively of white men. That was the idea of, you know, trial by my own peers, by my own peers meant only people of my own race. And so, you know, you didn't really get very many convictions. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a huge amount of justice, equality before the law of different Indians. The mere fact that you were a noble or an upper caste man did not mean that your evidence meant more than the lower caste person. So there was rule of law which came in very substantially. The British also brought in what they called the executive magistracy. The civil servant who was in charge of a district was also in charge of justice. He was called, in fact, the district magistrate. And as an executive person, on the spot, he could issue very, very quick verdicts. So you had quick justice, and there were formal judiciary for appeals. So the structure of a Western system of justice did come in during the British rule. The British created a new educated elite of Indians, uh, many of whom, in fact, were people who had studied in England itself and then come back. Uh, they absorbed enlightenment values, uh, fraternity, equality, liberty, all these values did come in. Uh, many of them abandoned the traditional values of Hinduism and Islam. And of course, many like Gandhi, they wanted an amalgam of both. They wanted both to be Hindus, they wanted to be Muslims, and they wanted to absorb some of these new values, uh, modernize the system. India became independent in 1947 and set about creating a new constitution. Uh, the people who were created in these new constitutions were substantially a westernized elite, many of them lawyers, uh, many of them who had in fact studied in England. Uh, and they were very clear that we need to bring in enlightenment values into India as part of that constitution, that there should be no discrimination on the basis of religion, caste, or gender. Uh, there should be no arbitrary government action that can just do what it likes, and equality before the law. Uh, 
Now, while this was well meant, the irony was that, in effect, this new framework criminalized 90% of Indians who were following traditional, uh, traditional laws and customs, because the traditional laws and customs were based on discrimination on caste, religion, and gender. So what did law mean? Law didn't really mean something that everybody has to follow. Law was put forward as, you know, this is a way of using the moral force of law to bring about social change. It was the very opposite of British common law, where what the ordinary people believed then became law. Rather, this was a new concept of law coming from the top and saying we will use this to change social values gradually in due course. Now, social values have indeed changed hugely. Uh, so to that extent, that project has been a success. And this is especially true in urban areas. And discrimination of various kinds have by no means disappeared, by no means, and yet has diminished, especially in urban areas. But the problem equally is that if you have all these laws which are unimplemented, respect for the law has also eroded. I mean, this is taken to be something cynical. If you really objectively implemented all these laws, it would mean jailing two-thirds of all Indians. I mean, I think all residences would be converted into jails, and there'd be a problem if there would not be enough jailers because everybody would be in jail. Uh, so, I mean, it's impossible to force this kind of thing in a democracy. So, it did help to create, unfortunately, a cynical police system, cynical bureaucrats, cynical politicians, and they said, well, okay, there are all these laws, but I, as a politician or I, as a civil servant, will use the law selectively for what I want to do. And this, of course, opens huge avenues for misuse, huge avenues for imposing a private agenda by taking advantage of wide-scale laws. What are the positives? The positives are that we have the media and the civil society that are free. They freely criticize governments, and this is an extremely important way of checking abuse. Uh, so, yes, there is a rule of law, but it is not just the executive, therefore, that is creating a law, a rule of law. It is the media and civil society agitations and NGOs who are doing it. These have proved vi vital for semblance of rule of law. India is not exactly a peaceable country. It is a land of a constant thousand clashes. Uh, it's happened through history and worsened with modernism. So there are clashes between people of different religions, clashes between people of different castes, and people between clashes of different religions, uh, different regions, sorry. I mean, there are many other kinds of clashes too, but so you say, these are the three main things on which people are constantly clashing. And, you know, India historically was a subcontinent of a thousand kingdoms. It was not a country. We are still in the business of nation building. And within that, there is open insurrections for independence in Kashmir, uh, in various small northeastern states, there are Maoist insurrections in more than 100 of India's 600 districts. Now, an insurrection doesn't necessarily mean everybody's rising, but it does mean that there are some groups who will occasionally go out and shoot somebody or take some kind of violent action. India has inadequate, ill-trained, and corrupt police who are completely unable to cope. India has, on average, 1.3 policemen per 1,000 population against the United States having four, New Zealand having eight, and so on. The police are highly corrupt. Uh, they will not register. I mean, if somebody comes saying, you know, this particular crime has been committed, very often they will not register it until you pay, pay a bribe. Uh, 
Very often in villages, the police are in the pockets of the dominant castes or the, or the, uh, or, or the dominant religions. They have very weak forensic or detective skills, and the main way a policeman uh, delivers justice is to beat up the suspect and get him to confess. Uh, third degree is the most, uh, most popular me method of police effectiveness. Uh, and because the system is so weak, there is implicit permission by the political class that the police can go and kill top criminals in what are called encounters. Uh, so, I mean, you just catch hold of the guy, shoot them, and then say, you know, we exchange a fire and we kill the guy. So much misuse and gross injustices. How is this checked? Again, this gets checked by democracy because democracy naturally creates coalitions in society. So if there are two castes that are quarreling with one another and maybe even killing each other in those inter-caste quarrels, those same castes will then join hands when they say, ah, there is this dispute with this other religious group. So you are foes on one issue, but then the foes become allies on another issue. So again, the people who are, uh, if there's a religious clash between, say, Hindus and Muslims, on the religious thing, but if then there is an issue of one state versus another state, shall we say what, uh, an interstate river waters dispute, then the Hindus and Muslims of one state will come together and the Hindus and Muslims of the other state will come together. So the remarkable thing is that if there was only one single divide, I think we could have endemic violence. But when you have a multiplicity of clashes, then people who are foes on one issue are allies on another issue, and this forces compromise, this checks violence, and this gives power to the minorities. I mean, if you had just had a 80% Hindu and 20% Muslim, you could have some terrible inequalities. But when there are all kinds of things and you need to create alliances to, to, to get well, uh, minorities therefore get unusual amounts of power, vastly in excess of their particular numbers. So this again facilitates some equality and some rule of law. However, security remains a big problem. There remain riots, there remain violence and ineffective police. And this is obviously worse for the ethnic and religious minorities and for the very poor. Another advantage of democracy, uh, politicians are immoral people. They say, you know, you show me a constituency that will elect me and I'll be for you. Then, so there are in some areas where there are concentration of minorities, so a politician will come and say, I am entirely for you. Or there are some especially poor groups, politicians, I am there for you. So uh, democracy creates champions for minorities. Uh, it's, it's part of the system. Uh, and this creates some empowerment for people who would otherwise not be empowered and improves rule of law. Unfortunately, it creates a kind of patron-client feudalism that, you know, I am the leader of the Muslims or I am the leader of this particular caste. And if you're corrupt or and if you're indulging in violence, all that is okay because, you know, you're a champion of this particular group. Uh, so it's a system of creating a dependence on powerful barons rather than the rule of law. We have a justice system which is semi-moribund. Uh, the British had the executive magistracy which delivered justice on the spot. I mean, a district collector would go out to this village, hear the things, and issue verdicts on the spot. And you had simple punishments like that fellow would be given uh, 20 lashes of the whip, 30 wishes of the... The idea of creating a long, complex system with a very large number of jails and spending huge amounts of money on the guilty 
sort of been, been regarded as silly. So uh, you executed people, you whipped people, and you got, quick, got the stuff quickly out of the, quickly got out of the way. Uh, and it was important that the chief executive was also the chief magistrate, which was the case under the British. Independent India said this will not do. So we have to have a full separation of powers. Uh, the executive, the, the legislature, and the judiciary should all go separate. So I think this has been useful in holding the executive in check. But it has ended the old tradition of quick justice. And now you get delays and delays and delays to the point where most people don't even want to approach the courts. Uh, and everybody is aware that the guys who hire the most expensive lawyers have the huge advantage. And in any case, I think I would also say the young have an advantage over the old because the old will surely die before their cases are uh, come, come, come to a conclusion. Uh, India has 30 million pending cases and only 30 million because nobody wants to approach the courts. <laughs> the grievances, it would be 100 million. Uh, the number of judges is estimated about 19,000 against a required 75,000. And we have judges who constantly focus on procedures, not on quickness of justice. Every judge will say justice delayed is justice denied and will then go on to take 10 years to settle his particular case. Uh, why? Because the procedures are important. If he shortcuts the procedures, he will be overruled at a higher court and strictures against him and he won't get his promotion. Therefore, there's the emphasis on procedure and not on just quick justice. There was the Ellen Mishra, Ellen Mishra was a prominent politician uh, who was murdered. The murderers were caught. In the lower court alone, the order was that this will be heard on a day-to-day -day basis. The case had gone on for 37 years. 20 of the top witnesses had died of old age. Uh, the defendant said, you know, in these circumstances, I've become an old man. I've already had two heart attacks in jail. Half the witnesses are dead. There can't be any real justice. At this point, why don't you just declare a mistrial and set me free? And it went to the Supreme Court, and the judge listened to it, and they rose and said, how dare you say 37 years is too long for a case? And they found nothing wrong in that. And they say, you know, you were the guy who kept asking for adjournments again and again. So if you asked for the adjournments, why are you blaming us for the delay? My answer would be, yes, yes, the guy asked for the adjournments, but it was the judges that granted the adjournments, right? So, I mean, I would say definitely the judicial system is responsible. But there you are. The attitudes are one of procedure. The attitudes are not one of quick justice. The result is that no powerful people are convicted beyond appeals. Many people are convicted in a lower court, then take seven, eight years in a high court, then go to Supreme Court 10, 15 years. Many influential people have died of old age before being convicted beyond all appeals. Now, this lack of justice erode, erodes ethics in all areas. I mean, if you're not going to be convicted beyond all appeals, why should you follow the law? You have created a situation where consistently the lawbreaker has an advantage over the person who follows the law. Uh, it has also led to the rise of the number of criminals who have entered politics and seek to get elected. In the last 2014 election, it was estimated that 182 of the 543 elected legislators face criminal charges, uh, many of them felonies. More than 100, I think, are facing charges of felonies. Some of those cases may be bogus. We do get to a situation where politicians accuse one another of crimes as vendetta rather than hard evidence. But still, it is a bad state of affairs. Now, you may say the answer is police judicial reform on a massive scale. 
to my mind that should be the number one reform required in india but uh, every party has skeletons in its own cupboard if it really faithfully implemented the rule of law its own leaders would be in jail so you end up in a situation where nobody has an interest in this particular reform so just summing up there are broadly shall we say four different kinds of justice there is civil justice the civil suits criminal justice the writ the writ jurisdiction of courts and public interest litigation in india uh, the supreme court has held that any individual can approach us saying that because my civil rights are being violated you can take up my case as far as civil justice is concerned in india it really is hopeless there is one famous case which has taken more than 100 years already the babri masjid case uh, enforcement of commercial contract this is supposed to be the cornerstone of free markets and of capitalism the world bank has an annual report called the ease of doing business and in that ease of doing business india was 2 years ago was ranked 182nd out of 183 countries in enforcement and contract we are better than east timor hooray <laughs> criminal justice also very very slow influential people generally grow free the good thing here is that it has been demonstrated that if a state chief minister is really serious then he can also get the judges on board and then you can devise ways of quick justice in bihar the chief minister nitish kumar came to power on the on a, on a platform of restoring public order and public trust he managed to jail 70000 gangsters within 5 years it transformed the state and it created 11.5% gdp growth now you know there are all kinds of economists telling you all kinds of reasons how do you increase and make growth more rapid here was a clear case one of the most important things is the creation of public order and putting gangsters in jail and you know the chief minister had to be very creative he says you know when we launch this case against this guy we accuse him of rape murder dacoity and other things the case goes on 20 years what do we do a very clever bureaucrat said sir the answer is forget all the other cases just try him under the arms act if you try him under the arms act the evidence of two policemen that he had arms is enough that the trial will be over in 15 days and he'll be in jail <laughs> so instead of throwing the entire book you found individual ways of quickly putting him in jail and then taking up the other case so the uh, there are ways of getting around and providing higher criminal just, uh, better criminal justice in india it's a pity is not happening everywhere but it needs to be done the third one is of the writs uh, if somebody feels that civil rights or arbitrary government action is taken forward he can approach the court for a writ to check or step that particular thing this in india works very well and i would say is india's strong point uh, if there's arbitrary action by the government on anything the judiciary is quick to issue writs to check that arbitrary government action stop it or reverse it this is a huge safeguard for society it is a big safeguard for business and I, and it's a big safeguard for foreign investors i mean one reason why foreign investors are willing to come into india is they say yeah, enforcement of contract is very difficult but uh checking government arbitrary action this place really is good i mean that's the contrast with china or, or some other places in china you can't really get a verdict against the government uh, in india you could almost immediately then there are the pils the public interest litigations citizens can ask courts to stay or reverse executive actions saying fundamental rights are violated uh the, 
the courts have got angrier and angrier with the governments and uh, corrupt politicians for neglecting their duties and have become activists to the point where the courts have virtually started legislation and have virtually started executive supervision of all kinds of programs. Uh, this constitutes a huge intrusion into the turf of other people, but the courts have said this is essential to check misgovernance. So for instance, there were all kinds of allocation of coal mines by people paying bribes. The courts just stopped the whole thing and said you'll have to re-auction all of those. Uh, same, thing, same thing happened in the allocation of spectrum. The courts said cancel it all. Uh, iron ore illegal mining was taking place on thousands and thousands of acres in open view because those illegal miners were in cahoots with the state governments. And in one state, two of the biggest illegal miners were in the cabinet. So there was a, how do you stop this? Supreme Court entered and said, we will close down all iron ore mining right throughout the state, and we will then supervise thing where case by case, one mine after the other is allowed to start. Now, this is a clear intrusion by the judiciary on the sphere of the executive. You may say that you know, how outrageous that the judges are behaving in this fashion. And yet this has been one of the kinds of things that has brought about some kind of balance. It has shamed the political class, which is now more reluctant to uh, indulge in these kinds of corrupt acts. And therefore, public interest litigation has been hugely positive in empowering civil society to check errant courts. And because of this, the courts remain highly respected in India, a highly respected institution, despite the huge delays and despite considerable corruption in the courts at the lower levels. So, to conclude, India has seriously flawed rule of law, but it does also have some redeeming features. And it's therefore remarkable that India managed to grow almost at 9% a year for a decade, despite very weak enforcement of contract. But while this is remarkable, frankly, it's not sustainable. Growth has fallen. Anti-corruption crusades anti -co have, have now stalled all kinds of what is regarded as normal business. And therefore, judicial reform, police judicial reform, is a major area for reform. And we need to stress that the free press, elections, and NGOs are playing a major role in checking abuses and ensuring some rule of law. Everybody asks, what do we do about these legal delays? How do we cut them down? Now, actually, a lot of research has been done globally because many, many countries have faced the problem of legal delay. How do you bring delays down? And in many cases, countries have passed new laws trying to force judges to do things faster. And the sobering experience is, in most cases, this fails. It fails because the judiciary actually develops its own, its own procedures by their own precedents then everybody has to follow the president. So trying to legislate on them typically fails. Uh, there is some evidence that the way to make it work is that you link the promotions of the judges themselves to quick disposal of cases. They say once you do that, once there is a private incentive for the judge to do things quickly, the judiciary magically begins to develop precedents and procedures that speed things up. Uh, and that may be the best way to go forward. It's an, this is one interesting paper I came across, uh, and I would say this is the kind of way we need to use going forward in India. So seriously flawed, flawed rule of law, some redeeming features, and we need some of them, more of them. Thank you. Thanks very much, Swami. Our next speaker 
has for the past uh, many years been involved in a truly heroic effort, which is to try to measure in a very serious way the rule of law around the world. Uh, Juan Carlos Botero is the World Justice Project's executive director and the former director of the Rule of Law Index, where he has led the development of the, this index and co-authored the report since its inception in 2008. And let me uh, just mention that the, this yearly report, the latest issue, just came out uh, this week. I think it's the finest measure of rule of law uh, of its kind uh, that's out there, and I encourage you to, to, to take a look at it. Uh, Dr. Botero has been previously a researcher at Yale University and a consultant at the World Bank, where, he's focused, where he focused on comparative legal research and also on developing cross-country indicators for the World Bank's Doing Business Report, which Swami had uh, mentioned. He has held uh, important positions at the Colombian government. Uh, he's been the director of the Colombian government's Trade Bureau in Washington, D.C., the deputy chief negotiator of the U.S.-Columbia Free uh, Trade Agreement, among other uh, important posts. Please help me welcome Juan Carlos Botero. Thank you, Ian, very much for these kind words and introduction. Um, I will... I have the easy task of telling you what the status of the rule of law is in 102 countries in 10 minutes. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> the, um, what does the Magna Carta mean 800 years later for the 200,000 citizens that we have interviewed in 300 cities around the world? And this is what does the rule of law mean today for the citizen in the street around the world? That is the question that uh, brings us here. Um, I have some bad news. I have also some good news. The notion of liberty and individual freedom that is so dear to this house is the ultimate foundation of the rule of law. After having interviewed over 200,000 people in the last eight years, my sense is that people own that more than we give them credit for. Let me show what the situation and what I'm going to present here. I would like to start with Tom Palmer's earlier mentions that the rule of law cannot be we just adopt the Magna Carta all over the world and that's it. We got the rule of law. The rule of law is a homegrown culture. That's, that's the litmus test. Is it a homegrown culture or is it something that we import? And the good news is that even if it is a homegrown culture, you can find these principles of liberty and individual freedom thousands of years before the Magna Carta. This is the slides are, this is 1772, something around that time, before the Christian era. I was called to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land so that the strong should not harm the weak. And this goes to the heart of what we just heard, that the law applies to everybody, including the government, and this is in the prologue of the Hammurabi's Code. Then you go to China, and you see uh, in the Huang's, I, I cannot pronounce it, you can read it. If someone disobeys the law, even if he is otherwise worthy, no, this is moving too fast, sorry. <laughs> I think, 
this is not working. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If someone disobeys the law, even if it is if he is otherwise worthy, he must be punished. If someone meets the standard, even if he is otherwise unworthy, he must be found innocent. Thus, the way of the public good will be opened up and of private interest will be blocked. Then we go to, this is 600 years before the Magna Carta, in the judicial guidelines of the second Caliph of Islam. And I'm again very hesitant to bring historical documents without context. But the principle, that the significance of this principle goes to the heart of what Tom Palmer was saying earlier. Treat the people equally in your court and give them equal attention so that noble shall not aspire to your partiality nor the humble despair of your justice. And then, of course, it comes the Magna Carta. The point I'm making here is that if we are to advance a global culture of adherence to the rule of law, it has to be rooted in universal principles that we all can refer. And there are plenty of elements and, 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 and notions that are thousands of years old in which we can base that. So from this starting point of a homegrown culture of the rule of law, the World Justice Project spent a couple of years developing a definition of the rule of law that will be multicultural, that will be acceptable in every country of the world, regardless of the level of economic development. We have tested this with literally thousands of people. It is, as, as, as every definition, limited, but it's just four principles. One is accountability. The government is accountable to the people. People are accountable for their own uh, committing crimes, etc. Second, the laws are clear, publicized, and stable, and then applied evenly and protect basic fundamental rights, which differentiates rule of law from rule by law. The third, the process by which the laws are enacted, administered, and enforced is accessible, fair, and efficient. And the fourth is access to justice, delivery of justice by impartial, independent representatives. These four principles then disaggregate yeah, into, this is, I'm sorry, I, I'm not being very effective here. So, la, the one that is in between these two. Ah, this one. Thank you. Uh, so what, what, what this, the rule of law index is, you can see it as a big iceberg, which this is the top. You can download this big from the web, this book from the web page. This is the top, a summary of a large data set of over millions of data points based on interviews of people in countries around the world. But what are we interviewing them about? This is, what is it what we are measuring? What we are measuring is these eight things, uh, or nine, but really comparing only eight. Constraints on government power. That is the starting point of the rule of law. Second is absence of corruption, which is the corollary of the principle of accountability. Third, open government is the accessibility. People can have the right to request information from the government. Fourth, protection of fundamental rights. Fifth, and, and there is only the universal declaration, is the very basic fundamental rights. Order and security regulatory enforcement, civil and criminal justice, and recognizing that justice uh, is, is delivered in many countries through informal justice. Those informal justice also have to have some level of accountability. This 
eight factors that we compare across countries, disaggregate into 44 indicators that are based on uh, over 500 variables. Sources of data, just two. Household surveys, probability sample, 1,000 respondents per city, per country in the two largest cities, and expert questionnaires in civil and commercial law, criminal justice, labor law, and public health. We are measuring outcomes, not inputs, and it is from the perspective of the ordinary citizen in the street. This is some of the interviewers. This is just one person being interviewed. This is exactly what we did. So uh, then we calculate the rankings. The, the, this has a number of limitations. I will go quickly to this. In summary, 500 variables, over 200,000 people interviewed so far, 5,000 experts in 102 countries. The outcome of this is this result. Now let me see what we find. When you go to the, each page, you find the global score, you have the global ranking, the regional ranking, and a, for each one of these variables, and then for each one of the indicators. This shows there. I will not go there because it will take you all time. And you can go to the data and interact and download data for each of the countries. So what is the status of the rule of law around the world today? As expected, it is highly correlated with the level of economic development. Yet, what, does, what is the direction of causality? We do not know. Is it because countries are richer that they can afford better rule of law, better paid police, better paid bureaucrats? Or is it because countries have better adherence to the rule of law, better protection of contracts, that they become richer? I believe personally that it works in both ways to some extent. And you see in this map, the lighter the color, the higher the level of adherence to the rule of law. And evidently, uh, North America, Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea have higher scores, attain higher scores in adherence to the rule of law when you look at the overall picture. Now, when you go to the regions, this is the good news. There is very little cultural difference between Costa Rica and Nicaragua or Honduras. Very little difference between Uruguay and Argentina. Very little difference between Chile and Colombia. And yet, the scores, Uruguay is ranking 22 out of 102 countries, and Costa Rica 25, and Venezuela is ranking 102 out of 102 countries. So, despite different levels of economic development, despite different levels of, of, uh, of, of, of other variables, the Latin America and Caribbean region, the Latin America region in particular, very little Caribbean here, is highly homogeneous, and yet very different level of adherence to the rule of law. This is, in my view, good news, because it points in the direction to change. It is not something that we need to take 800 years to change. If you go to Western Europe and North America, of course, they rank in the top 50, all of them. Uh, yet, you also see great level of uh, diversity. When you go to East Asia Pacific, of course, New, New Zealand, Singapore, Australia, Japan, Hong Kong rank very high. And you see Cambodia and Myanmar, 99 and 92, China and 71. Yet, is the same argument that I made about Latin America, although, of course, the, the cultural differences there are enormous. Um, when you go to Eastern Europe, 
you also see some degree of variation. Georgia, 29, and Uzbekistan, 81. And in the Middle East, only a few countries covered. Uh, again, a great level of, of, of variety in the rankings there. Sub-Saharan Africa, the same story, Botswana, 31, Zimbabwe, 100. Now, if we move India, 59. If we move beyond that, because it would take us a, more time than I, I think I, I have left to go to the details of each country. If you go to the regions, yet still you see some general issues. In Latin America and the Caribbean, crime and criminal justice is the prevailing problem. In Western Europe and North America, even though they rank very high, there are issues with perception, high, very high levels of perception of police discrimination tied to ethnic and uh, minorities or foreigners. And issues with access to civil justice appear to be significant there. Of course, much better than the rest of the world in, in terms of scores. But when you look at the issues uh, there, they seem to be the most significant. Middle East and North Africa, protection of fundamental rights. Sub-Saharan Africa, overwhelmingly the issue that is most concerning to people is uh, corruption. South Asia is delays in justice, as you just mentioned. And East Asia Pacific, again, uh, issues of uh, protection of fundamental rights. Second lesson learned after summarizing millions of data points, it doesn't change much from one year to the next. This is a statistical exercise showing how much from 2014 to 2015, what were the changes? Only the countries highlighted there uh, experience more than changing more than three factors, statistically significant change in more than three factors. So overall, this doesn't change much from one year to the next. Of course, institutions don't change very, very fast. However, it does change over a period of 10 or 20 years. Next lesson, it is not about the loss. The rule of law has very little to do with the laws. And let me try to make this case. This is the correlation of a very serious assessment of the rule of law on the books, which would be in, in the, if this works, it doesn't work. If, it, if in the vertical is the rule of law, is, is, the, is access to right to information measured by the quality of the laws. And in the horizontal axis, it is the score of open government based on people experience of accessing government information. And what we get here is that the correlation, which should be aligned like this, it is actually negative. And the reason is because countries like Sierra Leone, El Salvador, Ethiopia, Bangladesh have wonderful laws on the books. And countries like Germany and Austria barely have a Freedom of Information Act. And yet, everything in Germany and Austria, or a large part of the information from the government, which is accessing the government information, is the, is the, is the first step to holding the government accountable, of course. It is widely accessible. So it is not about the laws. It is about the cultures, it's the practices, it's the way in which the laws is applied. And this is this is this is important measure. I think we are okay. Second, and this is very interesting. If you focus, this is 300 cities. I'm just having a few here. If you look at Beijing and the top, how much trust do you have in officers working in the local government? The highest score among these 20 cities here, which are important cities, is Beijing. So the highest level of trust in local government 
around the world in cities is in Beijing. Now, when you look at this slide, the same questionnaire, the same people answering, could you please tell us how well or badly do you think local government responds to people's concerns about community matters? Which is the second last, only beat by Rome in this sample, <laughs> is Beijing. So the point I'm making here is that the, the cultural understanding of rule of law varies enormously across countries. So if we take just one measure, what is the level of trust? Well, rule of law is China. But if we take actual <laughs> responses on, on, on response to people's concern, well, the, the, China would rank last. So it requires a nuanced cultural understanding. And that's why the, the two previous speakers, I mean, I could not say anything beyond that. I will go to this. This is interesting as well because it's, when you look at which is the institution that is perceived to be most corrupt around the world, in 46% of the countries is members of parliament, in 32 is, is the police. Only in a tiny fraction is the judges. This is interesting data. Of course, it is not that these, they are much more corrupt in that proportion. It is which one is the most in the perception of the people. This is the, this is the second thing. In terms of accessing government information, there is data for each country in the world, I'm not going to go there. And I will conclude with this. What is the good news? The good news is that education and the rule of law seem to have a very high correlation. And I believe this is much more important and significant than uh, the one with economic development. Why? Because, again, what is the direction of causality there? There is a, a paper that we just, just published in the Journal of Law and Economics that suggests this theory. It's a theory, you can please download the paper if you find it of interest, which is people, citizens, complain for lack of delivery of services of the government and holding the governments accountable is the operational mechanism through which rule of law advances around the world. And better educated people have the higher capacity to file complaints, and when the police comes to abuse them, to say, do not, I have rights, to stand up. So this is the operational mechanism. If this theory, again, it's just a theory, if it is true, uh, the hope is that by moving around the world, these fundamental cultural values, not just focusing on the law, as, as Tom mentioned earlier, but focusing on this access, and broadening access to these notions of freedom and individual liberty, the rule of law should advance for the betterment of communities around the world. And thank you very much for your attention. Thanks very much, uh, Juan. That was very interesting, especially that last part. I'm sure that uh, our Argentinian friends would probably take issue with some of that, but I understand you're compiling a lot of data. We have time for questions. And if you have one, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll start right there in the aisle. Carl Golovin. Uh, Carl Golovin. Uh, my father was born in Odessa. Uh, his father was a captain of the Tsar's army. Um, they, of course, fled after the revolution. So concerning Russia, I have a question, and actually a broader question as well, about the effect that the reading of scripture has in people's demanding and, and accepting rule of law. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had spoken of government of the people, by the people, for the people. I understand he drew that quote from the preface to John Wycliffe's 
uh, first translation into English of the Bible, that the, the Bible was for government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I know in Russia there's perhaps not the tradition of people reading scripture and hence gaining an understanding for the, the importance of law and yet the potential for misuse of law that one learns from, from scripture. Well, in Russia, the scriptures were not widely read. Uh, it was not practiced, it's not like in Protestant countries and so on. People only began to read it in the late 19th century. But uh, the scripture had this effect. Um, the Russian church told uh, the Russian people that they were the only true Christians in the world, that the Catholics and the Protestants were heretics. And of course, the uh, people in the East with Islam and Buddhism and so on were out of, uh, out of the line. So their religion was the only true religion and uh, they should observe it. And they, but what the provisions of the Bible were played a very small role. I, I uh, read a lot of Russian literature and so on, and very rarely do people refer to the Bible, very, very rarely, certainly compared to Protestant and even Catholic countries. Uh, yeah, we'll take a question right in front, please. Hi, my name is Devin Watkins. I had a question about India. Given the failure of government to enforce contracts, I'm worrying about the extent and how good the arbitration systems might be in providing alternative means of contract enforcement. Yes, the government has been trying to pass legislation to encourage arbitration, and yet the clauses are such that the arbitration itself goes on and on, and at the end of it, arbitration, it's not binding. After that, very often you go right back to the courts. So as of now, the arbitration system has failed. A new arbitration law has been proposed. If you ask me, it still does not have teeth. So frankly, one has not been able to overcome the problem. I think that your, your work at the World Justice Project does take a look somewhat at arbitration. Do you want to say anything about how uh, prevalent that is around the world or how effective it is at promoting rule of law? Yeah, if, if, thank you. If we go to, to India and if we go to arbitration, the effectiveness of arbitration is much, much, much higher in India than the delays. In India, in, in delays is one of the worst countries in the world. But the arbitration is much, much more effective. Now, throughout the world, that is true. There is two ways of arbitration. The, the way to tie it is two ways. One is, for the vast majority of the citizens around the world, it is the local chiefs, it is the traditional justices that arbitrate the disputes. We're talking now about commercial arbitration, which is completely different. Both of them are alternatives to dispute resolution. They also have limitations. No? OK, we'll take a question from Andre. If I may uh, divide my question in two parts. The Identify one, yourself. Andre Larion of Katie Institute. Uh, Juan Luis, could you give us just a number for two countries uh, uh, cases have been pre presented here for Russia and India, overall indices, world uh, rule of law indices, and we'll maybe come back to that issue. Just for comparison. If I understood the question is, what, how, does, how do India and Russia score? 
You want to you want to compare India and Russia on the index? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, because we have been presented to case studies of two countries uh, of India and Russia, and it, and it kind of it would be interesting to see what numbers are saying about that. Okay. Thank you. Um, India overall would rank 59 out of 102 countries. However, this overall number to me obscures as much as it, as it enlightens because it is not overall. Rule of law is multidimensional. In, in terms of the multiple dimensions, for instance, in constraints of government power, checks and balances on the government, India would rank 38 out of 102. Russia would rank 90 of 102. Uh, absence of corruption, uh, 68 India, Russia 60. Open government, 37 in, in India, uh, 67 in Russia. Protection of fundamental rights, again, India would go ahead 61, and Russia would be 80. Order and security, 90 in India, so it's one of the most violent, where most, va where most crime happens and, and, and civil conflict today. And in Russia, of course, much, much, much lower, 74. Regulatory enforcement, Russia 64. So the, the perception of effectiveness in enforcing regulation in Russia is much higher in, 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 than in India. Uh, civil justice, India ranks close to the last in terms of effectiveness of the civil justice, much more effective in Russia, 60. And criminal justice, uh, India would, would outperform Russia again. This is if we are comparing them too, but however, the comparisons are limited. And the way where these comparisons are really, really meaningful is when you go to these 42 sub-factors, for instance, what I was referring earlier, that my, my sense is that while people in India recognize that the huge delays in administering justice, these huge delays do not uh, transfer in lack of trust or lack of judicial independence or lack of uh, judicial accountability. This is very high. Judicial independence and limited by the judiciary in India is, one, is, is way above its peer, very high in Russia. That issue appears, I mean, people do not report to have lots of judicial independence and checks and balances on the government. That's, that's as compared to these, these multiple areas. Um, again, this is just a summary of two minutes. Okay, uh, right here in near the front. Network, this question is primarily Could you speak up a little bit, please? Ariana Afsari with the Atlas Network. Can you hear? Okay. Um, this question is primarily for Professor Pipes. Uh, in your opinion, given the tension in Russia's political climate today um, and the growing number of Russian government opposition leaders and anti Kremlin activists, can you? I'll tell, yeah. Go, go ahead. Okay. Uh, would you say that opposition leaders like Neptsov um, are regarded by the Russian people more as champions that want um, to basically hold the government more accountable for its abuses of power or more as a threat to state security? Okay. Uh, somebody could take care of that, that uh, beeping noise. It would be good. I think the question was, uh, how do the Russian people look look to opposition leaders like uh, Nemtsov was? Look to what? To opposition leaders in Russia, uh, such as Nemtsov, and whether they look to him as some as uh, people who might hold up more accountability, force the government to have more accountability. Is that the question? Well, Russians are divided 
85% of the masses of the Russian people uh, who are for a strong state and who have contempt for opposition. 15% are descendants of intellectuals uh, and they like the uh, opposition. So when you think of Russians, you always have to make this distinction. The 85% are largely descendants of serfs. You know, until the middle of the 19th century, overwhelmingly Russians were serfs, serfs either of the state or of landlords. And as such, they had no rights and uh, had no notion of independence from the state. And their descendants in many ways inherited this, this, this view. So uh, when Putin came into power and began to act as an autocrat, uh, he got tremendous support. Uh, he has now about 80, 85% support of the Russian population. And this is of that part. And then 15% opposes him. So um, uh, you cannot speak of Russians as a whole, uh, but you have to speak of these two groups. And they have different attitudes. I wonder if surveys of that kind can fully be trusted in an authoritarian state. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a question right there in the back, in the aisle, please. Uh, courts are empowered to limit government, and certainly the, the only branch where the will of the majority is not supposed to be determinative. So uh, my question is, on, I was looking on your website for your justice uh, indices. Uh, it seems to me there's a vast expansion of the regulatory state, um, certainly here. Uh, and so the question is, are there any kind of indices or any kind of measure where you can say uh, something about the arbitrary and capricious enforcement of laws in the sense that if you have laws about everything, then the prosecutor can target, I feel like targeting him on Tuesday, target that person on Thursday, because there are so many laws, it's pretty much impossible to be in compliance with everything. And, and a related thing is the excessive complexity of law. Because of the regulatory state, there really is no limit to how many lawyers they can pull together and you know, if you're only a mortal and you can't afford to hire the biggest law firm, maybe you can't figure out what the law is. Yes. Jen, should I answer? Yes. Thank you. Uh, the first question, the answer is no. It doesn't exist, to my knowledge. The closest I would have is the Index of Economic Freedom of, 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 freedom of um, Fraser, Fraser and, and, and Cato. The, the, the closest to a proxy of that, but but I do not think it exists. Well, I do not know of it. Uh, we can. We, I mean, we have a number of variables, and I can discuss at the end to which ones of those could be a proxy of that. Maybe lovely to know, but I don't think we know this uh, systematically across countries. The second is um, the. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the second the question. Amount of, the amount of laws and the complexity ah, of, of course. laws. Yeah, th this is true, but it's not entirely true. We have a, a report like this that is also available on the, on the web, which is the Open Government Index. And what we measure is 
how accessible the law is to citizens. And in terms of enabling an environment to request government information and hold the government accountable, as well as petitioning the government and, uh, and, and, and filing cases for redress and uh, complaint mechanisms. And in those regards, the, the laws of the United States may be extremely complex, but the simplification of those laws in web pages and in, uh, in, in, in materials in some countries is remarkable. So in particular, the Nordic countries, the accessibility, Australia and New Zealand, in particular this, the accessibility of the laws to the citizens is enormous. The law in the books may be super complex, but the citizen knows his or her rights. And I think that's the test. It's not simplifying every law, but make the, cru the crucial ones that affect them the most accessible to them. And I, and I believe there is huge variation in the world, and it's being done relatively well in some countries. We'll take a question here, please. In front, wait for the microphone, please. Hey, Dr. Patero, did you break your crimes down categorically? Did you look at the internet as a medium of crime? And do you see the internet as being a way to bring justice to people in way out systems, the way that mobiles are being used to bring medicine to people in way out systems? No. We, 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 yes, we, we, we check, we collect data on, on five different crimes. Uh, no, we do not uh, go into the internet in, in relation to crime. I believe what you are saying is true, but we, we don't have that data. May I, may I make an observation here? In a poor country, the most, most poor people do not have access to any kind of justice. But through the internet, a number of state governments have brought about the initiatives that a complaint can be registered online. Now, when I go to a police station, the policeman will not register the complaint without a bribe. But online, I can register the complaint without a bribe. Secondly, the question of, you know, the, the record of the police then becomes evident. That's all these complaints were out there. When it's online, it becomes clear what is failure and not. So the net has a huge potential to improve accountability. Uh, there are a number of states which are bringing in the idea of right to service, where you can put in a particular uh, application for something, uh, a whole lot of information earlier, it required an application of, you know, can you give me a birth certificate or a death certificate? And you couldn't get it for three months without paying money. And now you can just download it online. So I would say there is huge improvements possible through the use of the internet. My colleague Andrei Larinov is insisting on making a quick question or comment, which we will go to, and then we'll ask, we'll go to another question. Is, who else has questions? We'll take one in the back, right in the center, right after this one, please. This is extremely uh, a short question to each member of the panel, maybe Jan, you as well. Coming back to your introduction uh, about the effectiveness uh, of the spread of rule of law around the world. Could you give your uh, maybe key factors or recommendations? What would be the best way to some kind of to improve rule of law in two countries that have been presented here, and Mr. Batara maybe around the world? What do you think? Does anybody want to answer that question? Well, I, I believe the only way is to empower citizens. An empowering citizen goes through education, my opinion. 
basically i think it has to be through civil society i mean guys have to individually take to the streets of protest if you just leave it to the intelligentsia or to the formal institutions i do not think that think that is enough i think the media are enormously important i think civil society agitations have been extremely important ultimately therefore if you are going to have an improvement i think these instruments which are ways of ordinary people giving their own voice these are the kind of things that will ultimately bring up bring about real changes did you want to say anything, uh, Professor Pipes, about the role of, of property in uh, strengthening or bolstering the rule of law? Yes, I've, I've, I've written a book some 10, 12 years ago called Property and Freedom. And I argued in it that property is essential both for freedom and the rule of law. Um, I think... As I mentioned in, uh, in my brief talk, in Blackstone's commentaries uh, on, the rule, on, the, on the laws of, uh, of England, uh, property occupies a principal place. And it seems to me that uh, where there is no property, there can be no rule of law. And where there is property, uh, law flourishes. I mean, it's no accident that uh, England, where property developed very early, uh, law has played such an important role in, in the culture. And in Russia, where property developed very, very late, uh, law played such a small role. So property is absolutely essential, it seems to me, to the rule of law. It seems to me that in countries that have already have a weak tradition of rule of law, a large uh, government is, by definition, uh, arbitrary rule. And so uh, one way of promoting the rule of law, if indirectly, would be to reduce uh, that interventionism, and that's the improper uh, 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 functions that the government in particular countries have, have taken over, to the proper, to the proper, to perform the proper roles of, of government. And uh, while that's not a direct uh, form of promoting the rule of law, it certainly creates an environment which, through history, we have seen in the, in the countries that have been successful in acquiring and strengthening the rule of law. It's a, it's a path that, that, that those countries have followed. And I think that one of the problems with so many developing countries is that they're trying to have uh, the rule of law while at the same time maintaining a large state that is constantly uh, acting in arbitrary ways, which, as I say, is by definition uh, contrary to the concept of the rule of law. So that's a, uh, uh, an observation that I think would merit much, much more research. We'll take the question from that gentleman, please. I'd be interested to hear any, any of the panelists have a particular comment on self-segregation by socio-religious groups who aspire to have uh, their own practice of could, their own practice. Could you speak up a little bit? We, we I'd be interested to hear if the panel have any comments on self-segregation by socio-religious groups in adopting what they consider to be tenets of a legal system, which is their own legal system, separate from the, the rule of law generally. And, word, is and is that, it's pr principally to Senor Botero, I think, and is that presenting a separate threat to the expansion or the consolidation of the rule of law uh, globally 
uh, because there is this new emerging anti-rule of law force, as it were. And by that, I gave away my, my prejudice. <laughs> he, he's asking uh, the self-segregation by particular groups. Uh, I, I, am, I am not sure I'm qualified to answer the question because what, what, what we have is, is a great deal of data. Um, let me give you some pointers in, in the direction of what, what I think would be an answer to this question. If you take the highest performing countries in the world in terms of rule of law, they tend to be very homogeneous societies. So it is the Nordic countries, it's the Australians, it's the New Zealands. These, these societies that are relatively smaller uh, and everything seems to work in a direction that is rowing everybody in the same direction. Now, when you go into the data and we disaggregate the surveys by income level, ethnicity of the respondents, and you go into the sociodemographics and you check police abuse, police abuse in Sweden is very, very low. However, when it happens, it is reported to be happening mostly or disproportionately highly against um, ethnic minorities or foreigners. So, and that pattern seems to be true all across Europe and North America. Uh, from that, what do we take in, in, the, in the level of adherence to the common sense of society? Well, the, we need to see ethno-linguistic fractionalization different as, as elements composing the rule of law. I have, I have done myself some research, some exercises, analyzing ethno-linguistic fractionalization, for instance, and rule of law, and the results are not there. The, it is clear that the most violent places tend to be, more diverse places tend to be more violent, and more, I mean, more groups tend to be more violent, but I do not think we, I, I, at least I do not know the answer. I, I, hope, I hope I was helpful. But. Okay, we have time for one last quick question and, and quick answer right there, gentleman in the front. George Georgiou, Towson University. Regarding uh, Russia, uh, if we accept the premise that 85% of the population uh, were at one time uh, serfs, uh, beholden to um, uh, the local, if you will, uh, lord or or whatever, uh, and thus their confidence or their reliance on the state uh, uh, for security, how does that differentiate between uh, their sense of nationalism uh, and their patriotism? Um, you seem to sort of disparage their nationalism in favor of their simply their sec uh, sense of uh, so seeking secu security from the state uh, rather than anything else. The, the question, I think, was uh, in regards to Russians being 85% descendants of serfs and uh, Mongol invasion and so on, how does that relate to their identity with the state uh, and patriotism? Is that a fair way of formalizing it? Well, uh, they are nationalistic. I mean, uh, you know, you ask Russians, um, according to polls, do you consider yourself a European? 
14% say yes, always, and 54% say no, never. Uh, and the others apparently don't answer. But the vast majority of Russians consider themselves uh, to be a sui generis nation, uh, very, very special, uh, unique in the world. They don't belong either to the West or to the East. And uh, they, they have qualities which no other nation possesses. They are very nationalistic, uh, the majority. But the 15% which I mentioned, and 14% who are kinds of Europeans, are very, very critical of Russian culture and then are not nationalistic. But the vast majority is nationalistic, very patriotic, and Putin plays on this very much. When uh, his popularity a couple of years ago was around 60%, when he absorbed the Crimea and afterwards attacked uh, the Ukraine, his popularity rose to 85%. Uh, so nationalism of a like, very aggressive kind is very popular in Russia among the masses. Yeah. Uh, a related but uh, kind of independent experience from India. Uh, 40% of India was ruled by various Maharajas, even when supposedly it was a British Raj. In 1947, therefore, when democracy came, a number of these Maharajas or, or their wives began to contest elections. And to contest elections, they did not join a political party. They contested as independents. And the question was, would people dare vote against a Maharaja? And the answer was that the Maharajas consistently won elections as independents, election after election, for roughly 30 years. Only after 30 years was there sufficient willingness of the people to say, we are no longer serfs, we are no longer subjects, and therefore now we are willing to work, vote against the Maharajas and for various political parties. And then you had a situation where the poor Maharaja said, my God, I have to join some political party in order to get elected. But it gives an idea that in a de developing society, if you are used to the authority of particular people, uh, I mean, they may not have been serfs in India, but yes, they were subjects of the king. To be able to vote against those people, it takes a long time to change the mindset, get rid of the fear of what might happen to you if you vote against those guys. Thank you. Well, we've only scratched the surface of this very complex uh, issue, as we expected. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I want to thank all of you for joining us, and I want to ask uh, for you to join me in thanking our excellent speakers today. Thank you.